Well, it's good to be with you all, uh, friends. Uh, I'm in need of help as I preach unto you the living word of God, and so let's turn now unto the Lord uh, in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we pray now as we would take up your word and hear it and seek to understand it profitably in our souls, Lord, that you, by your, the power of the Holy Spirit, would come upon this man, this weak man who is in need of your strength, for he cannot effect any change. There, there can be no power um, coming into our souls apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon both preacher and hearer. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, would you open a door of utterance to me that I might speak of the mysteries of Christ Jesus, that I would speak of them as I ought to, that I would point people all here to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer of men. And so, Lord, I pray that my speech and my preaching would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit, of the spirit and of power, that our faith might not rest and might not stand in the wisdom of men, but as it truly is in the word, the living word of God, the wisdom of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would exalt the name of Jesus Christ. May I decrease, and may the Lord Jesus Christ increase in this place. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, friends, at this time, I'd invite you all to take up your own copy of God's Word and turn with me in them, if you would, uh, to the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, and specifically to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, I'll be taking as my text this morning verses uh, 13 through 16. Of this chapter, and for those of you using the Pew Bibles provided for you, you can find that on page 893. Page 893. Today, beloved, in anticipation, a joyful anticipation of not just one, but two precious little babies receiving uh, the sacrament of baptism, uh, we're going to be looking at that sweet account in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus Christ is found gladly uh, taking up into his arms. Little children, even nursing babes, and so that he might confer upon them his blessing as the Redeemer. Uh, Of the three uh, recountings of this scene that we have in the scriptures, it is Mark, actually, who narrates it most exquisitely uh, for us. And that is because he gives us more details than Matthew and Luke do. And so here in this text that we're going to look at this morning, brothers and sisters, we are marvelously let into the tender heart of Christ the Savior, who is so delightfully eager even to receive small babes unto himself, the babes of Christian parents who come to him yearning for his blessed touch upon them. And what great comfort is here for the soul to take in, especially when you are gripped with how willing the Lord Jesus is to bless little ones who are presented to him by their believing parents. So without any further ado, friends, let's now read this text together. 
seeking to have our own hearts be stirred up by the special place that Christ holds in his heart for all children of the covenant who are brought before him. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read all the way through verse 16. Here now, congregation, the living word of God that abides forever. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Amen. So ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and majestic word. And may he be pleased to inscribe these words on each of our hearts and our minds as we consider them. Christ, children, and the kingdom. That's what I've entitled this baptism sermon. Now, why have I done that? Well, here in the text that we've just read and reading it alongside of its two parallel texts in the gospel, keeping those in mind, uh, we encounter here how all of these things, Christ, children, and the kingdom, interact and relate to one another theologically and especially covenantally. Christ, children, and the kingdom. Hence, this text, friends, has much light to shed upon the nature, privileges, status, and covenantal rights of the children of Christ-espousing parents. In other words, this gospel narrative is one of those texts, friends, that provides the divine grounding for the seed of believing households' right of entry into Christ by way of the seal of baptism, which you are going to see before you this morning. That which is that covenantal visible sign of entrance and inclusion into the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let this not come as a surprise to any one of you here. Christ is not baptizing any of these young children in our text because you know, the sacrament of New Testament baptism hasn't even been instituted yet, uh, as of yet, uh, in God's church. But the question before us this morning is, does this inspired interaction, this encounter uh, between Christ, parents, children, and his disciples, does it have any bearings at all, friends, of how we are to view the seed of parents who are in union with the Redeemer. Those of the Baptist persuasion, of which many of you know I used to be myself, they will argue vehemently that this passage of the Bible has absolutely zero theological implication when it comes to addressing the question of infant or child membership in Christ's kingdom. 
So just because this passage doesn't explicitly make any reference to uh, the Christian ordinance of baptism, does that therefore mean that it has nothing at all to say uh, to us regarding the relationship that Christ has to children who are born to parents who have been made holy by the gospel? And the answer to that question is no. No, but I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want to show you from the text itself, this text, with the Spirit's help this morning, that these words most certainly vindicate the practice of baptizing infants in the church of Jesus Christ today. Now, by no, now it is by no means the only text, but if you were to really understand, my friend, both Christ's teaching here and his acts here in connection with these little kids, some of them very, very little, you will be able to see how this text unquestionably sets forth and upholds the Christian church's historic practice of admitting newly born babes to the baptismal font of Jesus Christ. And the best way to show you this, I believe, without presenting to you every biblical argument of this morning is to just begin to walk straight through this prominent text and just let Jesus demonstrate, just let him argue for it himself in word and also in deed. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus could just settle uh, this once and for all for us as to who is to be deemed a legitimate member of his visible church in the world? Well, brothers and sisters, we need not look any farther than this because Christ does it right here for us. And in a vividly powerful way, one which provides the theological principles and also the pattern for presenting covenant children to him for baptism, that they might be blessed by the Savior through the sealing efficacy of this gospel ordinance, when it is so sovereignly applied by the divine spirit as he wills. And so in order to walk us through the text so that we might see the interacting points of connection between this particular account and the subject of infant or what is often called household baptisms, I have four points I want to set out uh, to you this morning. And I pull them straight out of the text because really these are the four natural parts or breaks of this text as given to us by Mark here. And they are as follows. First, we see from this text children brought to the Savior. Children brought to the Savior. Second, children belonging to the Savior. Children belonging to the Savior. Third, childlike believing in the Savior. Childlike believing in the Savior, and last but certainly not least, children blessed by the Savior. Children blessed by the Savior. Now, because these, uh, this would take a, a while to get through each of these heads, uh, of these four, uh, I want to just focus this morning upon just the first one, which means we'll save the last three points for another time. But the first one that we'll look at this morning is children brought to the Savior. Let's consider this heading. Uh, this is what we find, friends, in verse 13 and in the first part of verse 14. It provides the occasion for Christ's pointed discourse and for his actions 
uh, here. And it all revolves around his association as the Son of God with covenant families and with their children. Because remember, friends, Mark the Evangelist, he isn't interested in just telling cool or sentimental stories about the things that Jesus did in his life. No, he is showing us in these words how Christ really is the son of the living God. As he lays out who makes up his kingdom in the world. And also how God's kingdom, it must invade. It must be received. It must be applied in the heart. So in this section of his gospel, Mark depicts the scene in this way. Look at it with me again, verses 13 and 14. We read there. Then they brought little children to him, that is to Jesus, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, etc. Here it is plain that we have a situation where a line of Jewish parents or those who were tasked with caring or with nursing their children, they are found flocking toward Jesus, that they might have him bless their little ones. Some try to conclude from this that they are bringing their sick children to Jesus. But nowhere is that stated. And actually, Matthew makes it clear that these parents, these guardians, are seeking after spiritual blessings, not physical blessings of healing. Because they are desiring for Jesus to take their children into his arms And as it says in Matthew 19, verse 13, to pray for them. Then were they brought brought unto him little children, uh, that he should put his hands on them and pray, Matthew says. And this was not a thing uncommon during Jesus' day, to come up to a holy man of God or a prophet or who they perceived to be a prophet, And to ask them to pray that the Lord would pour out his special gracious blessings upon their children and upon their lives. There's a lot left unsaid here in this text. But certainly it is clear that these fathers or mothers or caregivers, they are earnest. They are genuine in their desire to have Jesus bestow upon their children a blessing from on high. These people had heard of. They had witness for themselves even, this man doing miracles among them. And so they were led to think that this, if this one could heal the sick, give sight to the blind, make the lame walk again, cast out demons with just a word and so on, then surely he could powerfully bless their kids' souls for their lasting good. As to the subjects who are seeking to have... uh, to be blessed by Jesus, uh, Mark calls them little children, paidon in the Greek, which is a fairly broad word that is used to speak of one in their uh, years of early childhood. Not really a specific age, but clearly young enough, as you see in the text, that Jesus is able to take them up into his arms, verse 16. But regardless of what the maximum age of these children being brought to Jesus, we do know the minimum age. And we get that from Luke, where he uses a word that is more specific, and it means a nursing infant. 
This is vitally important to make note of. Luke 18, verse 15, And they brought to him also, or even, you could translate, infants, that he would touch them, etc. So what we can gather from all this information, friends, given to us by the Holy Spirit in this text, is here we have a group of children, even infants among this bunch, being brought by their parents slash caretakers to Jesus. And Jesus, he is doing absolutely nothing to turn them away. Absolutely nothing, which is just unacceptable. It is intolerable and utterly sore sight to behold in the eyes of his disciples. And so the disciples, on their own volition, without consulting Jesus, as they should have done, they start trying to shoo away, to thin out the line, by rebuking the parents of these children, all the while thinking that they're helping Jesus out by doing this. Now, the question is, why are they so adamant about keeping these little ones away from Jesus? Well, it seems to be for several compounding reasons. We're not told the specifics, but their actions clearly reveal that they viewed these children being brought to their master as a nuisance, as a bother. That they were those who were just getting in Jesus' way or bogging him down from doing his next miracle, or preaching his next powerful sermon. They viewed these little children and infants as a waste of precious daylight. I mean, these little ones, they cannot even understand the significance of these prayers being made on their behalf, right? So what good is this accomplishing? Better to just keep them off to the sidelines until they grow up and they can actually have a real and meaningful interaction and conversation with Jesus. Maybe it's that they couldn't stand the crying any longer or the chaos that is, was inevitably ensuing when a group of children stand in any form of line. Clearly, they had bought into the idea that all children are are just noisy. They're just distractions that need to be put aside for the more important matters, you see. They're just too young, they thought. Surely they they cannot come to benefit from Christ until they approach their more mature years. So to them, it's time to send them away. They'll have to wait their turn so that they won't hold up Jesus from accomplishing bigger and better things for the sake of his kingdom. That's more or less the disciples' thought process here. And what's worse is that they actually had convinced themselves that they were doing Jesus a favor in rebuking these parents for, you know, setting them straight and freeing him, freeing uh, his time up getting him out of such a nettlesome encounter with these horde of babies being pressed into his arms, or so they thought. But the real bother to Christ was not the lines of tiny children being brought to him and being placed into his arms by their parents, but it was who? His disciples, isn't it? Who 
who were actively trying to keep their, these young ones away from Jesus in his affectionate and effective embrace as a redeemer. Mark is the only gospel writer who tells us that this greatly displeased Christ when he saw his disciples chasing away these parents with their children. The word properly means, in the original, to be indignant, to be enraged, to be irate. There are very few times we read of Christ expressing indignation in his early ministry. But this, friends, is one of those times. Because this is something that Jesus will not tolerate for even a second as the redeeming Son of God, people intentionally hindering parents in bringing their children to Christ for his blessing of them. Remember, beloved, these are parents who are visibly marked as the people of God. Those of the commonwealth of Israel, those in the church of God. This is the church at this time in redemptive history. These are not pagans off the street estranged from God and from the hope of his grace. Jesus will have none of his covenanted people's children obstructed in their access to him. And so this is a very serious matter to the Lord Jesus. So serious that you'll remember, friends, that Christ in his pre-incarnate estate, he sought to kill Moses in the book of of Exodus when Moses withheld the sign of circumcision to his son. And no doubt Christ would have went through with his killing of Moses if Zipporah, his wife, didn't take out a knife, a sharp knife, and circumcise her son right there. And then and we're specifically told in that text it was because of the circumcision. And so Jesus here when he sees his disciples restricting, blocking these children of the church's access to him, he is filled with holy and with righteous rage. Why? Because none of his disciples' faulty and uh, worldly thinking for excluding them, all of their perceived excuses, none of them are legitimate reasons that warrant their exclusion from him. Whether it be a child's squirminess, the commotion they cause, or their lack of being able to understand these things for their age, whatever else might be piled up as a perceived reason as something working against them, to, to Jesus, none of those things are valid reasons for them to be barred from being a recipient of his grace, grace that he has, has to bestow as the redeemer of sinners. And this is where baptism comes into the forefront. What is one of the biggest objections that some believers raise for not baptizing their children before they personally profess faith in Christ for salvation? It's what? You'll often hear this, well, they're just too young. They can't understand the blessings conferred from Christ and baptisms, and so that means they cannot therefore benefit from their baptism at all. Or apply it to children in the worship of God. You'll hear many who will say this, well, this infant or this young child, let's say two or three years of age or even 
earlier for the sake of argument. They cannot understand what's going on or being said in the worship service. And so it's just better for them to be sent off to some type of children's church or to just keep them tucked away in the nursery or to keep them at home because all they do is just distract others from worshiping God in the public worship. Just bring them back when they are more mature and at an age of understanding. But what's wrong with this kind of reasoning, beloved? Several things, but the main and devastating critique we must give in response to such objections is this. Who are we to say that our children, and I'm talking about the children of believers, our children, who are we to say that they cannot benefit from Christ and his grace? even while they are still nursing upon their mother's breast. Who's to say that they cannot benefit? You often hear it said that infants cannot have faith. Young children, they cannot believe. Therefore, until you know and see evidence that they have faith when they are older, they are to be kept away from the baptismal waters of Christ. But I ask you again, congregation, how do you know? that infants or little ones cannot have faith. Do you actually know that for certain? Is there some text in the Bible that makes it impossible that infants de facto, as they are, as children, cannot be in possession of faith simply because they are a child? You'll look in vain, my friends, for such a text in the word of God. While it is true that ordinarily, friends, faith is wrought in a soul by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, verse 17, there is no question about that. But does that imply that Christ is not sovereign in the disposal of his saving grace upon a sinner in whom he chooses to save? Such that he, is all, he always must or is only limited to using ordinary means to bring salvation to a lost and dead in sin soul. Certainly not, brothers and sisters. Christ is free to use means which he has set in place, absolutely. But he is also free to work above and above those means as he sees fit, as it pleases him for his own glory. Is there a restriction in the word of God that says something along the lines of this? Oh, children who are between such and such an age, they cannot be saved. Not until they reach at least this age. And then and then only can they be saved. Friends, you won't find anything close to that type of restriction in the Bible. On who God can bestow his saving mercy Upon. Don't be more restrictive than God in terms of who can be a receiver of his redeeming, cra- uh, redeeming grace through Christ. Instead, here are the inspired parameters. And the, Spirit, and the Spirit of God has revealed it to us under these terms. Romans 9 verse 18. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wills. Plain and simple. And one of the beauties of such a text like this, friends, is that even little children, even as little as infants, they can be touched 
by the saving blessings of Christ upon their souls. Yes, even with faith. If the Lord were so pleased to grant it, at the moment he took them into his arms, as we read in this text, or at the very moment that the cleansing waters of baptism are sacramentally poured upon the head of a covenant child, even before that or after that, or as it is for most Christians, at a later time in their lives, where they are supernaturally born again by the Spirit, upon being effectually called by the power of the gospel. Or for some, even when they were still yet in their mother's womb. Yes, you heard me right, friends. Babies in the womb of their mothers can possess saving faith. Not only is it possible, according to God's sovereign working, to grant faith to a nursing infant, but also to a baby in utero. Case in point, You say, provide me an example of this. I'd be glad to. Case in point is John the Baptist in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth. He was born again in the womb as prophesied by the angel Gabriel, where we read this in Luke 1, verse 15. You're going to want to mark this down. Luke 1, verse 15, For he that is John the Baptist shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost when? Even from his mother's womb. Is that an extraordinary work of the triune God? Absolutely, but it is no less true, and it establishes this point of biblical doctrine that we all need to bow our hearts down to this day, that we don't get to control salvation. We don't get to control salvation. The triune God alone does, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2 verse 9 and God wields his completely sovereign and saving grace wherever whenever and upon whomsoever he wills it to transform this is a fundamental truth about God and how he bestows divine grace upon and into a fallen human soul Jesus, in speaking to Nicodemus, said God's regenerating work applied to a sinner, it works like the wind. It moves in secret where we have no idea where it came from and not a clue where it is headed to next. John chapter 3 verse 8, the wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, not every child is born again in utero or in their infancy. That's not what I'm arguing for. But who is to say, friends, that God can't do this if it so pleases Him for His own glory and for His own purposes? But our God is in the heavens. Psalm 115.3, he does whatsoever he pleases. Is this the God who you serve? Is this the God who you love? When salvation comes to a person by an irresistible sovereign appointment, whether from the very moment of conception or right before they take their last breath in this life, that is not our choice to make. 
So if Christ can regenerate a baby in utero who was conceived in sin, as all babies are conceived in, in sin did my mother conceive me, the psalmist says in Psalm 51, why should that be a hindrance whatsoever to keep them from being baptized as a baby? Why should they be prohibited from receiving the seal of the righteousness of faith, which is what baptism signifies? To quote Romans 4, verse 11. But to make the case even stronger that even infants can be endowed with true saving faith, the prophet Jeremiah, you must know, was also a beneficiary of such divine grace as he had it before he came out of his mother's womb, per Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. That is not just that God knew that Jeremiah was there in the womb, but salvifically knew him by divine love and grace, as no is not uncommonly used in the Bible. I knew you, God says. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you. That is, I set you apart. And I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. But what about King David? Are we ever told about his conversion, conversion in the word of God and all the uh, narratives, historical narratives that were given of his life? Or all of his writings? We are, as a matter of fact. But according to Psalm 22, verses 9 through 10, converting grace took hold of him as a sucking babe. The psalm is no doubt messianic, Psalm 22, and prophetic of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sufferings on the cross, but it was rooted and it was grounded in David's real-life experience, which is what allows it to be typologically fulfilled by Christ as the greater David. We read there of him recalling when he trusted savingly upon Christ, upon God. This is not poetical flourish. It's him attributing His salvation to God, even at such an early stage in his infancy. He wrote this, But you are he who took me out of the womb. And listen to this. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Again, is that out of the ordinary to have the hope of salvation within you as a weaned child? There's no question about that. But who among us here has the audacity to look God in the face and say, No, God, you can't save a child as little as that right now. No, Lord, you need to wait until this child comes to an age of understanding. And then you are free to regenerate their sinful soul. Don't be a closet Arminian in how you understand salvation, brothers and sisters. Nay, but, O man, who are you that reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? Does not the potter have power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor, etc.? Romans 9, verses 20 through 21. Brothers and sisters, there is no such thing, and this is one of the main points I'm bringing before you this morning, there is no such thing as being too young to be touched by Christ's redeeming power. There's no such thing. Whatever you think is an obstacle, 
for your coming to Christ and the salvation that is only found in him. And I'm talking to adults here. It is no obstacle to the all-powerful and all-sovereign Christ of the gospel. And to apply such uh, this scriptural truth to infant baptism, when we come to bring our infants to Jesus in baptism, what are we doing but entrusting the whole of our child's salvation into Christ's hands? For all the hope that they have of eternal life, it must come to them through, uh, from Christ's sovereign, effectual touching of them with new life. Because our children are sinners, just as much as we are, friends. They are in need of the very same remedy that we have partaken of by gospel grace, if indeed you have tasted of it by faith. There is no one better to entrust your children's soul unto than to Jesus Christ. He who loves our children far more, infinitely far more than we ever will. And so today, as little Sage and as little Samuel are brought before the Lord Jesus, being presented and set apart uh, to him through the receiving of the gospel sacrament of baptism, we all, along with their believing parents, are to be fervently desiring in faith that Christ would powerfully visit them with the everlasting benefits of salvation. That he would work saving faith into their hearts as early as possible, even. Believing that what the outward sacramental sign of baptism, what that signifies, being washed with the regenerating waters of the gospel, Titus 3 verse 5, that they that that would become a living reality within them, which is something that none of us, none of us can do for them, but Christ can. Christ can and he does according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, Ephesians 1, verses 5 to 6. And so from this first point in the first part of the text, May we see, beloved, that it is never too early for us to lay our children before the Savior for their saving. We're not saying that baptismal waters by themselves save. That's not what we believe. But we ought to lay our children before the Savior, desiring that they be saved. For his arms all remain always open. To receive them. And if Christ is so willing to receive our children, let us be willing to give them to Him. And, call upon, and calling upon others to give over their children to the Lord. For He is a compassionate Redeemer, not willing to turn away any, which no doubt is intended to be a divine encouragement to all of His believing people when it comes to to our children's salvation. Leave it in the hands of the Lord. Matthew Henry puts it best in summarizing this first part of the text. He exhorts us in this way. Little children may be brought to Christ as needing and being capable of receiving blessings from him and having an interest in his intercession. Therefore, they should be brought to him. We cannot do better for our children 
than to commit them to the Lord Jesus to be wrought upon and prayed for by him. We can but beg a blessing for them, and it is only Christ that can command that blessing. End quote. Friends, this is what we are publicly acknowledging in our allowance of children to the baptismal font of Christ this morning. That Christ and Christ alone is able to provide what these sinful children, as precious as they are, need. Their greatest need in this life, soul-saving justification from their sins. And baptism sacramentally preaches that reality to all in attendance. And it obligates the receivers of this gospel sacrament to personally respond to the grace of God that has been exhibited to them. Which is something they cannot even do on their own strength but are fully dependent on God to do in them according to his own timetable, whether they be infants or whether they be adults. Well, I hope, friends, that this gives us uh, plenty to meditate upon as we prepare to behold the baptisms of Sage and Samuel Fenby. Lord willing, the next time we're blessed to have another child baptism at Grace, uh, we'll seek to unpack what really is the strongest argument for infant baptism that there is, namely that uh, it's this truth that to little children, to them, belongs the kingdom of God. And how, and how it is, uh, and how was that the disciples' failure to understand this basic truth about the kingdom of grace that caused Christ to be so indignant toward them? If the children of believers belong to the uh, kingdom of God in Christ, if the kingdom is theirs by covenantal rights of the gospel, then it must follow that they be given full access to the sacrament of baptism that publicly and solemnly admits them into the visible church of Christ. Hence these words and what follows are worth unpacking in greater detail that we might see For ourselves, how children are deemed by Christ himself as legitimate constituent members of his kingdom in this world. But as I conclude, hear hear Christ's infallible words that provide us, friends, with the New Testament divine warrant for permitting even little children to come unto him. Let the little children come to me, Christ says, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, oh, how grateful we are to you that you are sovereign in your disposal of divine mercy and grace toward all those whom you desire to call unto yourself, whether that be adults or even infants, even babies in utero even from their conception until their death, whenever it be, you are able to apply the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect life and death applied to their account. You are able to regenerate souls for salvation 
is of you, O Lord. And that is one of the main reasons why we do seek to have our children baptized because we acknowledge that you are sovereign in salvation and we long that you would do as you promise visit our children with the blessings of the gospel the very same blessings that we have received through faith by your grace lord we desire that blessing to fall on our children for their hope must be in the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so, Father, we seek that you would be um, faithful to your promise, that you would pour out your grace upon our seed, Lord, that we would be a people unto you, not just individuals, But, Lord, that our families, our church families, would be wholly consecrated to you. That all of our children, we pray, would be born again. And we know that is a sovereign work of your spirit that you do. And so we long for you. We long, Lord Jesus, that you would touch these very children who shall be presented before you in holy baptism. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would work your effectual grace, however and whenever you please, Lord, that what the, real, what the uh, sacrament signifies, the regeneration and renewing of the heart by the Holy Spirit through the waters of baptism, which it reminds us of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way to have our sins fully forgiven, Lord, we pray that that would take root in the hearts of little Sage and Samuel. Lord, would you do this for the glory and honor of your name? We look to you as the redeemer of sinners. And so, Lord, we're thankful that we have such a redeemer to bring our children to. And so we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.